Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the Mena with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. Hey, Ahmed. How are you doing? What have you been thinking about? Um, I've been reading this thing that you wrote about the essence of democracy not being votes. Tell me about that. Uh, I mean, you vote in a democracy, but I, I keep thinking that uh, the essence really of what holds a democracy together is uh, separation of powers. Um, I kind of, I kind of, uh, so I don't remember what I wrote, okay? Uh, but I kind of gave the example of uh, a family sitting around the dinner table and the father kind of uh, wanting to be democratic and then he's like, you know, what should, I, what you know, taking kind of a decision, for example, where should we go this vacation, right? Uh, and then, you know, he takes a vote or maybe maybe it's like, you know, what kind of car should I get or whatever, whatever kind of family decision. So he takes a vote. The thing is, he doesn't really have to because he controls, you know, he's the one who brings in the money. He controls the bank account. The house is in his name. Uh you know, yeah, I mean, he does, you know, he's, he is taking their, their, their uh, you know, he, he is taking their opinion and, you know, he's soliciting their feedback. But in the end, he has the power to go it alone, right? And that, I think, breaks a lot of democracies. So it's not a democracy, it's a decision to consult, which is... Uh... Yeah, I mean... It's I don't like I'm I'm not a political scientist so like I don't, I don't know what's what's the right word the the, the right term to use but I feel like uh, a lot of actual democracies break down because power is not really distributed properly and so uh, when we say it's a free choice it's not really a free choice and uh, some you know part of the state can kind of like strong arm the rest of the state and you know it can just break the 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 government. Uh, so I kind of I was like kind of wondering okay in the same example imagine if the fa- okay the father is the breadwinner but then the mother has her own income too uh, and then the mother owns the house and then they kind of distributed power in such a way that like one of the children has the Wi-Fi password and can you know can kind of change it and like make life miserable for the whole for the whole family the other like you know one of the other the other children he has like a band. And, you know, he can basically invite his band to the basement and make life really miserable for the rest of the house. Uh, and maybe one of the other kids, for example, you know, is a co-signer on, on one of the family bank accounts or something. Uh, horrible family dynamic. I don't recommend anybody like, design their family that way. But I'm thinking, like, how will that change the voting mechanism? Because now you're, you know, you're, you're, you're soliciting feedback. But at the same time, you don't have all the power, so you can't really go it alone. You actually need, you know, everyone else to go along with you. So consultation is more is more built in, baked into the system rather than something which is nice to do. You don't really have to do it. So a lot of Western-style democracies are democracies by form, therefore, and not really by uh, separation of power, by distribution of power. Because even though there's a consultation process, there's a power imbalance. Yeah, I think I actually think that Western style democracy kind of gets this, mm-hmm. um, and you do have separation of power, and it is important, and it is it does matter. Uh, but I think a lot of uh, you know uh, nascent uh, 
uh, democracy. I'm, I'm talking, for, for example, take the example of, of uh, Tunisia, for example. The president was able to, through like like you know shady kind of gray zone, but but without really overthrowing the constitution, he was able to basically take this democracy and make it into into an autocracy. Um, and I think it's, it's getting worse because he basically um, arguably had the powers to. Yeah. So the power was not distributed, but also, of course, there's, there's I mean, not not to get into into uh, into Tunisia too much, but of course, there's mistakes made on on, on all sides uh, that allowed him uh, that basically brought the country to this point. But this is what kind of like if if you zoom out a little bit, um, in a sense, democracy is really about the power differential. Uh, so if you have an elite who have so much power. Meanwhile, the rest of the, the nation do not have a lot of power. You end up with an oligarchy of some sorts. So you can look at this on multiple axes. Like I'm trying to think of the example I probably know best, which is the British political system. Um, like you can say a lot of things for it, but geopolitic, uh, geographically equal isn't one of those things. You have like all of the political activity centered on London. Uh, that's over the centuries drawn a lot of the economic activity to centre on London, which has pulled most of the population to centre around London, which has centred even more of the political power on London. Um, and you end up with like a very unequal country. And I've been reading a lot about how Germany is so different from this because you don't kind of have a London and then the rest of the country, but you have you know a handful of tier one cities like Frankfurt, Munich, Berlin, uh, etc., which all seem to be quite equal. Maybe they have a particular sector of the economy or a, a chunk of the political system, but you don't have the entire country centered on one city. So, I mean, you're talking about this geographically, but if you zoom out, this is, I think, why um, this is why I think economic inequality is a threat to democracy, hmm. because it does create a situation where the power differential, uh, you know, you have a small clique who have so much economic power. I think uh, eventually you do have elite capture, and then you you kind of end up with a kind of a feudalism or or a uh, or an or an oligarchy, uh, in all but name really. I think this is why uh, economic equality uh, is essential to democracy. It's difficult to argue against the idea that most Western democracies are in some stage of that process at the moment um, of like mm. state capture by entrenched interests um like an example i was recently reading about is the fact that these uh again to take the british system example but this is probably amplified in the us um you have these all party all party parliamentary groups in the uk which are kind of like political groupings cross party within parliament where you can have like the all party parliamentary group on jazz music for example and they will like be the people interested in uh, jazz and regulating jazz or whatever laws pertain to jazz, etc. Like you'll have ones about. You can't finance. regulate jazz, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very bad example. But you'll have like the the one on finance. You'll have the one on I don't know uh, culture. You'll have like different niche areas where people who are particularly interested in in understanding that issue and any regulation relating to it will band about. And I've read this article in the Guardian. Um, I can't remember how many of these groups there are now. There's something like 500 or 700. Um, and they're basically all privately funded, it turns out. They aren't actually funded by the state. So you have a lobbyist who decides that it's in the interest of the, the client or the industry, which is their client, 
that, you know what, we need a grouping to further the interests of this industry within Parliament, and we're going to sponsor that. Um, like, a big one is uh, the fact that the arms industry, like a lot of the big players like BAE and Raytheon, uh, sponsor a bunch of these groups. Um, and you, yeah, you end up with that distortion of uh, the political process because interests are kind of dragged along by, uh, the public interest is dragged towards private interests. I mean, uh, taking it back to the point about how economic inequality is, is a threat to democracy. Uh, but then before that, we're talking about democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dinner table example and the really horrible family dynamic. Uh, I was thinking that I could take this in one of two directions mm-hmm. because there is another element of democracy that I think is uh, is really important, which is the public sphere. Um and I've been thinking about this deeply, really, as we, as you know, Palestinians are trying to kind of reclaim their voice, and we realize that you sort of you sort of need. Uh, I mean, of course, the theory of the public sphere here is that you know, in a democracy, because you know, it's the people who decide. The people have to be informed. So the public sphere is that space in society where this kind of you know exchange of ideas, this meritocratic, inclusive space where people can become informed in order for them to uh, be, you know, to, to be able to uh, express their voice on public affairs. Um, and of course, there's a whole conversation to be had about like how the public sphere is suffering since, you know, the fragmentation, social media, etc. Um, but then there's this organic link between the public sphere and democracy that I think I wish was more uh, um, explored. And uh, it's kind of it reminds me of this, uh, you know, th- there is this thing that I saw in my town that reminded me of this a lot, which is that apparently in the summer of 1940, uh, French colonial authorities in Syria, they ordered the confiscation of all radios in Syria. Uh, and there was like only 20 in the whole country, uh, mostly in coffee shops. And it wasn't really about the radio. It was because uh, people would go to the ra- where the radio is, they would gather around it, and, you know, like they'll be listening and they'll be discussing. It became a public sphere. It became a place where people are able to, you know, meet and, uh, you know, form opinions or potentially mobilize. So this was basically the same reason that coffee shops were banned at different stages, like including the Ottoman Empire. Interestingly. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I read about this. I, I mean, I didn't really uh, I didn't really check the history, but you're right. Apparently, coffee shops were banned initially in uh, in the Hejaz because they became a public sphere cafes became a public sphere yeah because you'd get sedition when people gathered to drink a stimulant and talk about the issues of the day yeah and uh, of course i i guess if if they were uh, you know if, if they were getting drunk they wouldn't be much of a threat uh, in fact they'd be an opportunity because you could you know the the dear leader can say that we're protecting public morality so to go back to that link between the public sphere and democracy, the idea is basically that you can have a system where everybody votes on, you know, the way the country is governed, but that isn't necessarily very helpful if these people aren't very well educated about how the system works and about what the issues that they're voting on uh, are about and, you know, the relevant factors for discussion and what affects it and, you know, that kind of thing. You have to have the full details in order to make an informed decision. Um, so the public sphere theory basically talks about how well are the citizens able to discuss and how close are they to ha- being able to have the full details. Um, and the sad fact is that in a lot of 
you know, especially nascent democracies, but I think there's a general degradation worldwide. Um, there's a focus on the formalistic or ritualistic aspects of democracy, which is putting your card into a box once every four years. Um, and that comes at the expense of um, the actual soul of it. And we kind of neglect how capable is the public of making good decisions. Yeah, and uh, the, 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 the interesting thing here is that, uh, I mean, of course, I, I, I got into the theory of public sphere through working with my friend, uh, Bill Abbas Mankreda. Shout out to him uh, because he, uh, you know, he, he's he's the founder of Monadara, which is a debate platform, an Arab debate platform, uh, and he introduced me to the work of Habermas, uh, Jürgen Habermas, the 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 German philosopher who basically wrote uh, a very important book on the topic. And what's interesting is that I think uh, this was two thousand six, before the rise of social media, or maybe even before. He kind of predicted the the how social media is going to create. Is going to hurt the public sphere and hurt democracy. Uh, I think I don't remember what he called it, but it was basically the bubble that you create around yourself, fragmentation. You know, so we don't have. You know, you go into your timeline, you see a very different set of uh, of uh, you know of facts. While I go into mine, and you know, depending upon the algorithm, depending upon you know my 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 uh, my location, etc., is going to serve me different content. So it's going to create, like, uh, at, at an extreme, it's going to create a situation where they don't even intersect. Where, like, my, I'm living in an information uh, world, which is not yours. So basically, you don't have a public sphere. You have multiple non-intersecting public spheres. And, exactly. and that's because you don't have issues of common concern uh, or you don't have common venues of debate and discussion. Um, exactly. So you end up with a population which can't really relate to other parts of the population. And, you know, for, for me to kind of turn this into a Kawakibi discussion, um, you know, we talked about this a lot in terms of uh, how Twitter, between 2011 and 2000, maybe 2017, uh, was an Arab public sphere. It was basically where, you know, anybody can go in if you're speaking in Arabic and you can you can form opinions, you can shape opinions, etc. Mm. And how since, you know, of course, I was arrested in 2014, because of my tweets, uh, but then the kind of some of the energy of the public sphere kind of went into the Gulf countries, especially Saudi Arabia. Um, but then that was shut down in 2017, and we can see that there's a lot of disinformation targeting that public sphere to make sure that it doesn't work. Uh, well, they first flooded it with abuse and trolling to make it unusable. Exactly. So it's almost impossible for you to use it. And now, I mean, even now, I, I enjoy tweeting in Arabic, but at the same time, I'm like, is it worth it? Is it is it worth it for me to say this in Arabic? And then for three days, I will be getting like insults and, and, and you know, uh, like my mentions will be full of like real ugly stuff because of these enormous troll machines that kind of are 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 attacking anybody who tries to to have a, a substantive conversation in Arabic. But I've been I've been kind of wondering. Uh, this is like a, kind of an incomplete thought. But I'm wondering like the link between public sphere and nationalism. Mm -hmm. The idea of like because Arabs uh, are not really one people. Like uh, I I don't even think we should call ourselves Arab, but rather Arabic speaking peoples. Uh, you know we come from different uh, you know different backgrounds, different uh, you know even different ethnicities really. 
Yeah. What we have in common, really, is not common lineage, but the fact that we all we're all united uh, with you know in in one public sphere in a sense. Of course, this goes historically as well. And I'm wondering, you know, like what is the impact on that on nationalism? Um, and I was thinking about it actually in the in the um, uh, in the Ukraine Russia example, because a lot of, I think a lot of Ukrainians speak Russian as a second language. So they're also plugged into the Russian language public sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering how much of that really plays there. Like how, I, I don't have an answer, just a question really. So what was it that you were thinking of? Basically that you have some kind of drawing together of different communities if they share a public sphere? Yeah, I mean, it's contact, right? Like like if, if me and you speak the same language, uh, we're into this, the same public sphere. When you write something, I can read it. When you when, when I write something, you can read it. This kind of cultural contact eventually becomes something more. It becomes almost an identification, an identity. Uh, you know, of course, over centuries. I, I mean, I, like, uh, the, the internet, etc., is really, really very, very recent. So I'm wondering how much that had in the the formation of such a thing as Arab nationalism. The fact that we spoke one language, uh, or you know, it became kind of you know, in, in a way, uh, interesting historical note here. Uh, the the Middle East, especially the 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 eastern flank, I'm talking the Mushrik, always had two uh, you know uh, two majority languages. One was an Indo-European language, and the second was a Semitic language. Uh, so it's, in a in a much in, you know before the rise of Arabic, it was Aramaic, and you know uh, Persian, and then of course there's also Greek, etc. What I found really fascinating is that. Uh, Imperial Aramaic was the official language of the first Persian Empire. So the Mm -hmm. empire was Persian, but they did not make their own language the official language. They made Aramaic the, 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 what do you say, the the official language because it was always already the lingua franca. So it was kind of easier for them to do that. And that kind of like appends a lot of your ethno-nationalist ideas that, you know, it's basically people, language, uh, uh, what do you say, borders, hmm. uh, because borders change, languages change, and, you know, also people, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of biological races also is like... Is, yeah, it's, people it's, are it's more intellectual than they realize. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, kind of thinking, you know, what is the relationship here between uh, between this identi- identity, formation of a one identity, and the fact that, you know, you kind of interact with each other and you speak the same language? So uh, what this is... To, uh... What this is making me think of is uh, the rise of Islam and the fact that uh, this new polity, this new political grouping, was accompanied with the spread of a language, and that kind of uh, allowed this formation of an identity across, you know, a really vast swath of area across different cultures, um, and like that was underpinned by a common religion, but a lot of it was also underpinned by the spread of a new lingua franca, a lingua franca, which created like shared uh spheres of communication like you could even see the hajj through that lens because uh no matter how different your context people from like the far east and the far west of the empire would descend on a single city every year and intermix and communicate presumably before going back to where they came from um and i wonder how that figured in the cohesiveness of uh you know the muslim world I mean, I always found it fascinating. I mean, I, I have I, I enjoy a lot of books from you know Islamic tradition, 
uh, going back centuries, uh, the fact that you can pick up a book written like a thousand years, more than a thousand years, and you can read it, and and it's you know, uh, it's it's amazing to be able to access uh, public sphere also down 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 history. Hmm. Uh, it's always fascinating to me how someone could write a book in 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 Morocco, uh, but then you know his travels would take him to to Mecca for Hajj. And then he would settle, for example, in Syria, and then he would get a post in, in Egypt and then, and then, you know, and then live there until, until his death, right? And how this is a very common story in history. The fact that, uh, you know, the fact that anybody could, you know, if you speak that language, you could be, you know, you could, you could be uh, of, uh, of African origin, sub-Saharan African origin, you could be of, uh, of Persian origin, etc., but you can actually influence this, this kind of shared public sphere, sphere, not only in your time, but down history. That I found is, you know, really an interesting angle, which is, we don't really read a lot about these days. Yeah, two thoughts on that. One is um, the fact that I hadn't actually thought about the fact that you can have common concern, not only with people in a different place, but even people in a different time. Like you can, like in the English language, it's very hard to actually access the thought pattern and the concerns of someone who lived a thousand years ago. But the Arabic language was already mature and already looked pretty much like it does today when the English language was only just beginning to emerge. Um, and the other thought was basically, um, no, I've lost that one. Well, I mean, let's let's stop here because you know our conversation started with uh, with with democracy and the dinner table and ended up with with historical examples of uh, you know historical Arabic. Okay, I've got to uh, say it just before we leave. But basically, what the other thing it reminded me of is the fact that the nation state was so alien to our region, um, and the fact that the reverberations of that are still being felt today. Yep. Um, yep. Like, and this is something we explore a lot in our book. Uh, which we have to keep plugging. Uh, so yeah, Middle East Crisis Factory. See you next time. See you next week. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.